you take your copy of the scripture, your Bible, and open it to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. Fear, he is a liar. We just sang our way through. Let me show you one spot, one place that the Bible specifically identifies a kind of fear that Satan is able to use in such a powerful way that the Scripture says it results in slavery, fear that turns into a slavery to that fear. This is Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Since then the children share in flesh and blood. The children of God are humans, flesh and blood. He himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2 that he, Jesus emptied himself, divested himself of all of the authority, power, privilege, that he had in heaven way before Bethlehem, and then he became a man. He emptied himself and became a man who then was able to go to the cross to die for our sins. This is saying that in just a little bit of a different way. He himself likewise partook of the same, partook of flesh and blood, as the same as children, the children of men, the children of God had. And then look what he said. Let me read back through that again. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Let me read that again. Verse 14, since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, Jesus likewise, partook of the same. That through death, through his death, through the death of Jesus, he might render powerless him who had, who had, past tense, who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Around the world at this moment, panic, fear is driving so much of what we find ourselves engulfed in. Now, this is not intended in any way to be a statement attacking the common sense and the scientific directives that our, our leaders have given us to, with the social distancing and, and um, so forth, groups no larger than, than 10 and so forth. There is, there's a difference between wisdom and fear, right? There's a difference between wisdom and fear. This is talking about 
the kind of fear, a particular type of fear that Satan has specialized in piercing the hearts of people with. It's the fear of dying. It's the fear of death. What your Bible says, given to the writer of the Hebrews by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is saying the fear of death can become a slavery, a form of slavery. You're so enslaved to being afraid of dying that Satan has a way of orchestrating your movements. But then Jesus did something to strip away from Satan that power, the power to hold over people that they might die, they would die. Then what? The thinking that the most awful thing for any human would be to die physically. Let's read, let me go back through this again in a shorter version one more time. He himself also likewise partook of the same, that through his death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus, through his death, would strip the power away from Satan to control death, that he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their life. As long as Satan, without any challenge, without anyone saying to him, you can't do that, as long as Satan had the ability to control death, then he could own the outlooks, he could own the emotions of the human race. But when Jesus took in his body your sins and mine, and he went to the cross and he died on the cross, and he was raised from the dead, and he would be able to say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, Jesus, though he or she dies, yet shall he or she live again. It's the testimony, it's the declaration that Satan no longer has the authority to rule over people's lives with the fear of death because Jesus has proven that Satan has no authority any longer to keep people in the grave and away from the Father's heart. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live again. Folks, listen. Here's the thing. The Lord has the final say over when death comes to the child of God. Satan is not the one who determines when you or I die. Jesus is the one who is in charge now. One, one more time, one more time. He himself, Jesus, partook of the same flesh and blood 
that through his death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death, who through fear of death are subject to slavery all their lives. There's more insight given in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. You turn back to the left a few, a few pages. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he, Jesus has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Here's the legal principle. What Jesus was doing on the cross was accomplishing a legal victory for you, among many other things. The wages of sin is death. Satan knows that. You violate the law of God. You break the heart of God, the law of God, and the result of that is death. It's not that that a loving God has to impose death. That's just the fruit of actions. That's the result of actions that are done violating the heart of the Lord. Satan understands that, that the wages of sin is death. He understands that God the Father will honor his law, will honor his rules. Satan is the most powerful. Now follow this, please. Satan is the most powerful of all the created beings of God. Satan was created. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's he's not omnipotent. He, He is limited. He is a creation of God. But he's second only to the Lord himself in power. And a part of who he is, is he is disobedient to the Father. And that is what caused him to be cast out of, out of heaven and to be leading the, the fallen angels who followed him in the rebellion. He's the most powerful of all the disobedient creations on the face of the earth. And Satan is the perfect legalist. He is called the accuser of the brethren, right? That's one of his names, the accuser. Well, what is he doing? He's accusing accusing people before God. He's saying, he will will say to the Lord, he has the access, evidently, to accuse the brethren, the brothers and sisters in Christ, before the Lord. Meaning that when we do something that violates the Lord, go against the Lord's heart, then he can use that as a point of accusation before the Lord. That's why it's just incumbent upon us to make sure we're trying to live clean with our hands clean and our hearts pure before the Lord so we don't give, the ground, give any ground to the enemy to accuse us before the Father. But what he, beyond that, not just accusing the brethren, he, he would use this, this reality 
that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. He would take that and use that as a legal leverage point before the Lord to be able to say, they have chosen my way, God, and not your way. Therefore, I have the right to rule over them. They are my followers. They are not your followers. That was the case until Jesus did something incredible. Jesus saw you coming and saw me coming. Peter will say he took in his body our sins as he hung on the tree. So that when Jesus died, the wages of sin being death was paid. It, 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 it removed Satan's ability to say, these are sins, these are wrongs done in your sight, God, because these people have chosen me over you, they're mine. Jesus came to say, even when folks have chosen wrong, even when they've chosen to go the, go the other way, go their own way, I'm coming to take in my body as the sacrificial lamb of God. I'm taking their guilt, Satan. I'm taking their sin, Satan. And I am the one who will pay the price with my blood for their sin. And as a result of that, because that was accomplished, Jesus Christ stripped out of Satan's grip the ability to cause the deaths of people, specifically people who have embraced Jesus Christ and what he did for them on the cross for their sins. They've embraced Jesus. They've received Jesus. They belong to Jesus. And so the power of Satan to control them has been broken. Let me read this one. Go back through this again. Paul writes it in a different way. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Here's the legalist Satan, having a list, being able to know what you did that violated the heart of God, who you did it with, when it happened, how long ago it was, and for what duration of time it extended. He, Jesus canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. God, they violated this law. God, they violated this law. God, they did this. They did it for this long. Certificate, canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. We're guilty. We were guilty. We were guilty. We violated it. And it was written down. It was recorded. But here's what it says that Jesus did. Knowing that that's how Satan would be. Knowing that he would remember those things. Jesus took those certificates of decrees against us hostile to us, requiring judgment to come to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, all of the certificates of debt, 
all of the listings of the wrongs that were done and the, how long they were done and who all he was with, Jesus hung on the cross with the certificate, the ledger of everything you had done, everything I had done. And when he was nailed to the cross, he was nailing to the cross those certificates of debt, those things hostile to us, and he was paying the price that those things would require in order to be released. He was paying the freedom, paying what is called the ransom price with his own blood, with his own blood, with his own blood. Listen, Satan can, can handle, put up with just about anything, but you bring up the blood of Jesus to the devil himself, Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you. Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you. And he understands when that is spoken from a heart of faith, conviction rising up within the heart of the speaker that he has met a match that he cannot defeat. The blood of Jesus stripped away Satan from having the right to take you to death. When that is written across our hearts by the Spirit, then there's something else that goes on within us. We find ourselves being set free from the fear of death because I'm not being put to death by the devil. When, when death comes, that'll happen because the Lord is calling me home. It's not that the devil wins. It's the ultimate victory for the child of God when the Lord says, come home, my child. Now, with that in mind, I want you to go to the last book in your Bible, the book of the Revelation, and Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother, fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, a vision. He begins to hear things. He begins to see things, and that is what the entire book of the Revelation is It is the unveiling, the revealing of the reality of who Jesus Christ really is. He says he turns, verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze, which when it's been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. 
I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of hell. Where did he get those keys? He took those keys away from Satan himself, who had the power of death. And as a result of Satan having the power of death, he could cause people to live in slavery to the fear of death all the days of their lives until Jesus came. And because of his death on the cross, he paid the price. Sins could be forgiven. Debts taken away. When faith is put, trust is put in what Jesus did on the cross as payment for my sins And I, from that point on, can live free of the fear of death as a a result, as a result, as a result. Here's the bottom line, brother or sister. You're not going anywhere until Jesus says, come home. The devil can't kill you. A virus can't randomly decide that's going to take you out today. Jesus Christ holds the keys of death and of hell. Remember that. Let that drop 18 inches. Let that encourage you in the face of all that we hear and all what seems to be the uncertainty of our times. Here's the certain solid fact. Jesus Christ, your Savior, holds the key to your death. You're not going to hell because you've trusted Jesus. But you'll you'll never go to heaven until the Lord Jesus says it's time to go. Now, he may use some sickness, disease, accident as the vehicle by which we leave this life and go to be with him in glory. But it will not be some random, uncontrollable, unknown, out of beyond God's control circumstance to happen your life. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saint. Satan can't take you out. Sickness can't take you out. Till it is time for you to go home. Rest in that. Be encouraged in that. I just feel like the Lord throughout the night, last night, was just stirring in my heart. And I felt like I, I kept hearing him say, tell them about heaven. <laughs> tell them about heaven. Tell them about what they can look forward to on the other side of life down here. So that's, that's what I want to do for just a, just a couple minutes here. So what's on the other side? What's on the other side of this life? Would you find John chapter 14? John chapter 14. Jesus is saying this. He came from there down here. He's talking about a place that he knows like the back of his hand. Before he was ever in Mary's womb, 
He was the Lord of glory, the King of heaven. He came from heaven to this earth. So if we're going to understand how to get there, we need to hear what he has to say. If if we're wanting to understand what that is like over there, we need to hear what Jesus has to say, which he comments in this way. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, you believe also in me. In my Father's house, that's another name for heaven, are many dwelling places, many places to live. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. He speaks of it as a real place. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he repeats that. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. I'll come and get you and take you to the place where I am. Now, folks, listen. If you are a slave to the fear of death, these words can sound hollow. These words can sound there's no, like there's no way for that to be true. But when the presence of the living Jesus moves into your heart and by his spirit, he sets you free from the fear of death, then what happens is there comes to be a joy instead of a dread about what's coming next, about, about what, what's going to happen. What is going to happen? Whenever death comes knocking at your door, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what's going to happen. And in that place, in that place, in that place, somehow, some way, it's going to be a place that will seem familiar. It will seem like it fits. It seemed, it seemed like somebody who knew me had been making this place ready for me, which is exactly what Jesus is saying. Can you imagine if you were a parent and one of your children had been separated from you for a long time? You, you of course, were there when they were born and you watched them grow for a season, but then something happened and the separation between the father or the mother and the child came to be. It was a difficult distance that there may have been some communication, but there was no physical presence, no hugs, no kisses. But it was in your heart as a parent to believe that one day, one day that boy, one day that girl, whom you hadn't seen in a long time, who hadn't seen you in a long time, one day that boy, that girl, was going to come home. You knew them. You knew what they liked. You knew what they didn't like. You knew who they loved, who they wanted to be with. You knew whether they loved mountains or oceans or tall trees or pavement. You knew all of those things about them. And you set yourself to prepare a place for them. So that when the time came for them to come through the door, and they saw you, they would also see and sense a place 
that let them know that you hadn't stopped thinking about them. You hadn't stopped loving them. You'd been looking forward to the day when they would come home. In my father's house are many places to live. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, you can count on this. I'm coming back for you. And I will take you. I'll take you unto myself and take you to the Father's house and your place in the Father. Oh, my goodness. If the devil can keep people from knowing that about heaven and about what is after physical life down here for the child of God, sure he can keep people in slavery to the fear of death. But when the light of Jesus and the hope of Christ and the fact that he is the resurrection and the life, Satan cannot take you. Satan cannot keep you if your heart has been given to Jesus and that Jesus is the one who has said, you are mine. I'm preparing a place for you. And I'll come and get you when it's time. I'm not coming a second earlier, and I'm not coming a split second late. But I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. When it's time for you to come home. All right? Some folks can wonder, well, what, what, what's it, what is it going to be like physically as far as our, 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 what we look like on the other side? What are we going to be doing up there on the other side? Luke chapter 9, one of the most fascinating records in Scripture, what is called the, the transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration, where here for just, for just, just a few minutes, heaven came to earth. The atmosphere of heaven came to earth. The glory of God in heaven that was Jesus' possession came to this earth, and as that happened, two men came back to this earth who had been dead for centuries, came back to this earth. Let me read this. Luke 9, 28. Some eight days after these sayings, it came about that, that he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he, Jesus, was praying, the appearance of his face became different. And his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him. And they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And it came about as these were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. 
And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. This is a moment. This is a glimpse of what heaven on earth would be like. Jesus in his glory, Jesus in his authority for this moment before he goes to the cross to finish his mission on this earth. But what about these two men, Moses and Elijah? Moses had never been to the promised land until this moment. He, 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 he died in the wilderness, remember? Elijah, a prophet from centuries before, In, this, in the realities of heaven, in, in, the, in, in, in the ways that it would be in heaven for that moment, Peter, when he saw Moses and Elijah, knew who they were. There's no indication that Jesus called the team captains together and did that team introduction to the 50-yard line, and, and Moses, this is, this is James, and, and John, this is Elijah. It wasn't that. Somehow, some way, they just knew. In this place called heaven, this place where we're going, there is reason to believe that there will be immediate and clear recognition of ones we have never met before. Secondly, these men were fully operational. They could speak. They could move. They could stand. They could think. They could converse. They could express logic. They could, they could whatever it was that they were saying to Jesus, but they were sent out of heaven to come to encourage Jesus before he went to the cross. Immediately recognized, fully operational, and the third thing about them is that they were on a mission. Folks, listen, if the devil can keep folks believing, there's no way to know what's on the other side. So you gotta, you got to get all you can, keep it. Your whole life is just what you can see in this life. If he can keep you believing that, then he can cause you to be a slave to the fear of death. But if you embrace the truth that is in Jesus Christ, that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is the one who has stripped the power of death away from Satan, and you embrace what he promises, then your life and your attitude and your hope and your joy for the future that will extend beyond planet Earth, will extend beyond your street address, can shape your life in incredibly freeing ways. The fear of death can become slavery. But it's amazing. Job would say, naked came I from the womb, and naked shall I return. You and I won't take one nickel with us. They dressed the body, put it in a casket, but not even the corpse in the casket can appreciate the clothes that are on the body. Jesus would say, 
What does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world but to lose their soul? Your soul is found. Your soul is restored. Your soul is, is, is saturated with truth when you embrace Jesus and all that he commits to give and is pledged to give and has accomplished for the sake of those whom he loves and he died for. I want to show you one other thing, one other passage. Go back to the book of the Revelation. This is Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21 um, is one of the most amazing descriptions. Though it's, it, it, it's, it, it's in this apocalyptic book, which is mainly a vision, and there are symbols in this book that are sometimes difficult to figure out. What exactly do they mean? We may not get the full understanding until the Lord himself explains these things to us. But there are some things in the book of Revelation that are strikingly clear. This is one of those. Revelation 21, and I want to start reading in verse 3. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, John is recording this, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God is among men. And he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Verse 4, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful, and they are true. A description of what that place called heaven is going to be like. It is the place where the Father Himself, the scripture says, with his own sovereign hand, as his children come to him with tears maybe from the pain that they've just come out of on this earth, but now they're in the new place. They're in the Father's house. And it says that the Father himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Then it says... And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Death is the result of a stimulus somewhere back here. Mourning is the reflex of something that caused that reflexive action. The reason that there's no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, is that there no longer exists in that place any causes for death, any causes for mourning, or crying, or pain. That everything that could cause a tear has been removed. 
Everything that could take a life is no longer allowed to exist. There is nothing there except the presence of the Father and the joy of the children because the Father is wiping away every tear from their eyes. And there exists no further reason why there should ever be another tear or another reason to be sorrowful or another fear of death. Amen and amen and amen. I felt like Still do feel like, at the risk of someone hearing this and saying, oh, that's just so heavy, or that's just so morose, or that's, that's, just, that's just so dark. The truth of the matter is, it's anything but that. Someone has said, we're all terminal. It's just a matter of when will be taken from this life to the next. But Jesus, knowing that, has made arrangements for Satan to lose his power, to intimidate you with the fear of dying, to put you in slavery over whatever I've got to do, I've got to stay alive. Why why is it that we can fight so hard to stay out of a place that sounds so great and so glorious? But it's a part of our human nature. We don't want to leave places. We don't want to leave people, mainly whom we love in the sense of, dis- of distance. It's something very sad and even something very frightening. The Lord knows all of that. That's why he says in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. You believe also in me. When the time comes for you to leave this place, to go to that place, I'm coming for you to take you to myself and to take you to the place that I've prepared for you. All right? That's what I felt like I needed to, to say to encourage and in the middle of all that is, that is going on. The child of God, yes, we need to take our precautions. Yes, we need to follow the instructions for the, the social gatherings and the um, you know, and all the other things that are being given by authorities over us. Yes, let's do that. that, that there is a difference between wisdom and fear. We, we can do a number of things in wisdom, but it, we don't have to be doing everything out of fear and the fear of death because Jesus is taking care of the reason for us to have any fear of death. When he satisfied the demands of the law, when he was raised from the dead by the Father's approval. The greatest news about Easter is that that's a declaration that our sins are forgiven. If Jesus was still in the grave, his sacrifice would not have been worth enough. His sacrifice would not have gone far enough for the sins of the world. But because the tomb is empty, it meant that the Father accepted the sacrifice of the Son. You put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you, and there is forgiveness from the Father. 
There is the pleasure of the Father, and there is even the imputed, the given righteousness of Jesus, the fulfillments of the law that he accomplished for us that is imputed to our account. We stand before the Lord, not just forgiven, but we stand before the Lord clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. All right. But what about storms? What about storms in this life? If if it, we've got that, we're understanding that, that at some point the Lord will call us home, but then he's in charge of that. But what about the storms down here in the meantime? I want you to find Matthew chapter 14, if you will. Matthew chapter 14. We love this story. We love this section. Read it and reread it and imagine ourselves in the middle of it. Simon Peter being called to get out of the boat in the middle of the storm and come to Jesus. Matthew 14, 22. And immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, a long way from the bank, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary, blowing against the boat. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him And said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. And my brothers and my sisters, here's one of the main points of this. If we draw our circle of Jesus only being Lord, only being who he is in calm water. When there are no high winds, there are no waves that could threaten the passengers in the boat. That the only way you can know Jesus is here is if he's calmed everything in advance. He's rebuked every devil first. He's settled all the problems 
So he just steps in on a call. If that's the attitude, we miss so much that is at the heart of why Jesus did it this way. The calm hadn't happened first. It was pitch dark, not in, not in broad daylight. But in order to show his men everything that may be over your heads is still under my feet. He came walking over the waves. The best that the storm could do, the best that the devil could do, Jesus just walked across the top of. And even in those places of danger, we would think, fearful circumstances, it's striking that instead of Jesus saying, you boys stay in the boat, you boys hunker down, let me calm this real quick and get that. Instead of calm in anything, one of them says, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. And Jesus doesn't tell him, stay there with your life jacket on. He says, come on, come on. C.S. Lewis has commented, Jesus isn't safe, but he is good. If you want to keep everything smooth and everything safe and everything predictable and every hair in place, then find somebody else to follow besides the real Jesus. He's familiar with storms. He, we could even say he's at home in storms because the fear of death had no part in him. He took off on that walk like he was walking around the bank, but instead he's walking across the water. Oh, my brother, oh, my sister, the real Jesus is one who understands there are some things about him we will never learn in calm water and in port. That in order for the things that are really just good theory that we say we believe to become ingrained in the granite of our heart, there need to be some storms. So that in the places of those storms, we sense his presence there. We haven't left him. It's not that we, these men had done nothing to violate the Lord. They were doing what he said do, and all hell broke loose. The storm came. Jesus would say, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. But you be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. I have overcome the storm. Storms, storms have a season. Storms have a lifespan. Jesus doesn't have to calm every storm in advance. But here's the truth. He will use every storm in the lives of his children to reveal more of who he really is while at the same time exposing some things about us that we need to admit and know and own in order to cling to him, trust him more completely. 
Let me show you one other storm. Finish with this. This is the last chapter, the last part of what probably was the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote before his martyrdom, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, verse 16. At my first defense, Paul writes, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Do you hear any hint of the slavery to the fear of death in Paul's writing? Saying, I've been in these spots before. I've been in places where the lion's Mouth was right at me and upon me. But the Lord delivered me then. And the Lord will deliver me when my time's come, our time comes, safely into his heavenly kingdom. Now my question is, when Paul says, but the Lord stood with me, how did he know? What did he mean by that statement? Was, it, was, it, was this a brain function? Was this an academic conclusion? Yes, God is everywhere. God must be here. Or did Paul have a sense that somebody else was in the room? Somebody else was in the room. Folks, you've been hanging with Alamo City these last several months. You, you will remember the time we've spent on what Jesus meant when he would encourage us to pray, thy kingdom come, or the verb first, come thy kingdom. And we've said it probably a thousand times. You can't have a kingdom without a king. The kingdom coming is about the presence of the king coming to be known in that location. Jesus would also say, if you're looking for the kingdom of God in places, in geography, in locations, you won't find it there. The kingdom of God, if it is to be found, will be within you. On the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of Jesus was poured out, that was all about the kingdom of God. The king coming to make his presence felt, his strength known in the hearts of people who had been paralyzed by fear, tripped up and shackled by shame, i.e. Simon Peter. But when the presence of the king filled them, 
those shackles of shame were broken, that the fear was shattered, the confidence, the Lord is here. The Lord is here. The Lord is here. When Paul was saying, but the Lord stood with me, he is saying what the heart of the Lord is for you to feel right in the middle of your storm in this setting. All hell may be breaking loose. The world may be feeling like it's on fire, but the Lord stood with me. Come, thy kingdom. Fill me with the spirit of the king. Fill me, Lord. Fill me, Lord. I'm just trying to say, some of you you are trying to get your strength out of Scripture you've memorized. That's not a bad place to go. But if it has become just words on a page, and there is no fire when you read those words, then what is missing is the sense of the presence of the king. Remember Emmaus. Jesus had been rumored to have been raised. From the dead. They couldn't find him. Didn't know where he was. The two disciples on their way to Emmaus. And Jesus comes and walks with them. They didn't recognize him and he didn't disclose who he was. But later they said, Did not our hearts burn within us as he showed us himself in the scriptures? As he Went all the way back to Moses and the prophets and, the, and, 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 and so forth. Did, did, our, did not our hearts burn within us? That's an evidence of the presence of the king. I want to say this, and I say it respectfully and I say it carefully. The written copy of Scripture was never intended to be a substitute for the manifest presence of the king alive and operative in your life. Where we are weak, he is strong. Where we have lack, he has more than enough. And he, by his spirit, has the ability to cause us to trust him and to rest in him and to step out in faith with him when he calls us to do those things. Don't draw your circle about, oh, this is the only time I'm going to know that Jesus is with me. It's when he's calmed everything and he's run off all the trouble and he's paid all my bills and everything is settled. That's the only time I'll know him. You're drawing your circle too tight. What if his heart in the middle of your storm is to cause you to have the sense that he has come to you in the middle of the storm? That he's standing there with you. He's standing with you when everybody else has checked out. My, my, my. My, my, my. The Lord doesn't have to cause a storm, but he will use a storm. I want to read, there's one other verse, and I, I said that a minute ago, and I broke my promise, but this is Malachi, Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, and it's not the past, not the verse you think I'm going to send you to. Last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. 
Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. Look at verse 17, Malachi 3, 17. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I, pray, I, I prepare my own possession, that can be translated, the day that I prepare my own special treasure, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. In the storms, in the thick of the fight, dangerous situations, the Lord knows your loyalty to him. The Lord knows your heart for him. And he has the power to spare you because of the favor, the compassion that he feels in his heart toward you because you have served him, you have honored him, you have sought to bless him. That's the kind of Lord we serve and Savior we have. Before we close, I want to pray. I want to pray one more time. And I want to ask you, wherever you are, except if you're driving, don't let go of the wheel, where you could sit or stand and with your palms stretched out. It is the symbol. It's the symbol of surrender but it's the symbol of receiving, accepting. Lord, this is our posture before you this hour. We surrender to you. We yield to you, Lord, all that we have, all we love, all that you've blessed us with. And Lord, it's in our hearts to ask you to please, Lord, in your power, in all that was accomplished through your blood on the cross, we ask you, Lord, to protect our babies, to protect the elderly in our Alamo City family and beyond the ones whose immune systems have been compromised, the ones with, with asthma and all of the other conditions that the medical experts say would cause someone we love to be in a place of high risk. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, you, you whom every molecule has to obey, we ask you to take care of us. We ask you to protect us. 
We ask you to keep this virus away from us, Lord. We ask you to preserve us. We ask you, Lord, to reveal yourself to us in ways, clearly in ways that we may never have seen you before. We ask you for the ability to trust you in this season. Anoint us with the ability to trust you, to believe you, to praise you, to thank you. You've said in everything, in the middle of everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Lord, would you help us by your spirit with that? And then, Lord, we accept as your promise, Romans 15, 13, now may the God of hope Fill you up with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, in the name of his Son, Jesus, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. God bless you.